0: I'm going to be reading from John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Willie. It is always framed this way. That science is smart, it's informed, it's right, it's true. Religion or faith is backward, bigoted, repressive, and false. If there's a character that is put in front of us, it usually looks like this. The character representing science is a former professor at Oxford University. He was knighted. He holds advanced degrees from 42 different institutions. He's a best-selling author. He's Time's man of the year. And on top of that, he's so good looking and chiseled that he could be in a GQ photo shoot tomorrow and you uh, wanna shield your spouse's eyes from getting a glimpse at this guy christianity or faith the character that depicts that paradigm is much different this guy's name is just joe and he has a ged and he lives in a swamp with his wife and 11 kids he reads by firelight he thinks oprah is the antichrist and he makes butter on the weekends that's christianity Christianity, faith, and faith is just wishful thinking. It's backwards, it's repressive, it's an outdated uh, worldview, it has an outdated book, it's full of stories and legends, this book, we're gonna talk about that next week, by the way. It's an irrational, blind leap of faith into the dark, that's what the Christian worldview is. Science, on the other hand, is where answers are true. Science is where we get all of our truth because science is objective and it's rational, it's thinking, it's moving us forward with overwhelming evidence. And we could say it this way, it is our savior. That's what the world would say. They may not frame it up in that term, but that's what they mean. And so either or is the only option given. And if you don't side with science, guess what? You are the fool. And our culture answers um, why this is. It's because science, secularism, naturalism has won. It will say that religion and God has lost. It can be summarily dismissed. And that's the ideology of the day. And if you look for that, you'll see it everywhere. It seeps through the cracks in commercials And it loves college classrooms, and it sells books on the bestseller list, and God is simply an outdated notion, and anyone still clinging to God is hugging a lie, a great big lie. But it's not the case. And that's, that's what we're gonna discuss today. That's why we're here. Not only has science not won, but faith in God and faith in science aren't even the ones competing with one another. Actually, the two sit very closely together. The conflict isn't between science and God at all. I wanna show you very quickly why this is true. I wanna show you a picture of a guy named Steven Weinberg. And he uh, won the Nobel Prize for, what's that word? Physics, very good. Steven Weinberg is an atheist. I wanna show you another picture of a guy named Charles Townes. Charles Townes won the Nobel Prize for, what's that word? Physics. No, uh, Charles Town is a Christian. What does that tell you? it tells you that top scientists are found on both sides of the worldview divide. Their science of that word physics is not what divides them. In fact, between 1900 and 2000, 65% of Nobel Prize winners believed in God. And if science has already won all the arguments, then we would expect that the winners of Nobel Prizes would be all atheistic and all naturalist in their worldview, but they are not. So the divide, can't be between science and God. It must have to be somewhere else. And it is. The real conflict is not between science and God. The real conflict is between naturalism and theism. And so here's the premise today, that faith and reason, my mind, are not opposed to one another but belong together. Science and God can walk hand in hand together. And that will lead us to a very countercultural idea by the time we're done today, that the theistic explanation of the world actually makes more sense than atheistic explanations do. What if despite looking like uh, James Bond in, in a Bond film, secularism and naturalism and atheism is in fact the view that is outdated. What if that's the case? So... Let's dive in, and first we need to define some terms. I've been using these, throwing these out already today. Let's backtrack just a little and define what atheism or naturalism, or maybe you could throw secularism into that, what it even means. Uh, This is the worldview where the universe is all that exists, and the universe gives no evidence of God. Ultimate reality is mass and energy, or uh, the popular thing today is to say that ultimate reality is nothing. There's nothing, nothing. Uh, It's a bottom-up explanation, meaning that we look around at our world and we can reduce everything to physics and chemistry, and that's how we explain our world. On the other hand is theism. Theism is the exact opposite. The universe is not all that exists because there's a God outside uh, who is ultimate reality, who created the universe. And the universe does give evidence of God. Um, And the universe explains itself not only from the bottom up, just like uh, atheism and and naturalism, but it also explains itself from the top down, meaning God inserts himself and gives us revelation, gives us messages about himself so that we can understand the universe. That's naturalism versus theism. Second definition, science. What is science? Science is a set of intellectual disciplines that study nature, And we read statements all the time by scientists that are not scientific. Uh, Statements by scientists aren't necessarily statements of science. Let me give you a couple. Here's uh, Stephen Hawking. He said this, religion is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. All right, that is a statement, an assertion by a scientist. Here's another one by his colleague, John Lennon. Uh, John Lennox. Atheism is a fairy story for those who are afraid of the light. It's the opposite, isn't, isn't it, right? Why are neither one of those statements very helpful to us? Because they're only assertions. They are not science. Assertions don't carry the day. Science is a study, a discipline that studies nature alone. And so, probably the thing that we need to remember in our definition of science, then the thing that needs to come out of that is that science has limits. It has limits. Sir Peter Medawar said this, the existence of a limit to science is made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions having to do with first and last things. Questions such as, how did everything begin? What are we all here for? What is the point of living? Science can't answer those questions. And when we uh, want it to, when we think it can, we do a disservice to it. If you asked this, why is the water boiling? What would the answer be? Well, science would say this. The answer is that heat underneath a kettle is being conducted through the copper of the kettle and it is exciting uh, the water molecules so that they move more and more rapidly and then you get boiling water. And of course, you know there's lots uh, more detail to it than that. Yet, that's what science would say, that's why the water boils. Do you know, want, want to know why the water really boils? It's because I want tea, right? That's why the water boils. There are different levels of explanations. Science has limits. And within those limits, science doesn't contradict the other explanations, but it complements them. C.S. Lewis put it very eloquently. He said, in science, we have been reading only the notes to a poem. But in Christianity, we find the poem itself. I love that. Here's the last definition. Faith. Faith. The new atheists have been very successful at changing what the word faith even means. So successful that Webster's has actually added a new definition, a sub-definition of faith. It's under number two and it's 2B actually. And it says, faith is believing when there is no evidence, believing in something for which there is no proof. in some circles, for somebody to say that you have great faith is probably the biggest insult that they could give you. Why? Because they've redefined what faith even means. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, who's a, it's a very popular book right now in our, in our culture. He said, a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Listen how, to how he defines faith. Faith, being belief that isn't based on evidence, is the principal vice of any religion. And I wanna just say today, I agree with that statement. Why? Because the biblical notion of faith is nothing like what Dawkins is talking about in that quote. Christian faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It's not a blind trust without any evidence. John writes in his gospel, the one that we read from, at the end, he says, these are written, I've written all of these events in the life of Jesus. I've written all of these things that I've experienced so that you might believe that you might have faith. The word is pistis, it means trust. And to say we have faith, to say we believe is to say we trust. And why do we trust in this person named Jesus Christ? Because there is ample evidence to do so. John says, these things happened and we trust that John is telling us the truth. Luke says, I talked to eyewitnesses who were there, and we trust Luke. Paul says to his readers in the first century, when he talks about Jesus being risen and seeing the risen Lord, he says, I saw uh, the Jesus with 500 people at one time, and some of those 500 people are still around, and you can go and Talk to them and they will tell you what they saw as well. So go get the story from them. We don't believe blindly. We believe, we have faith because we have reason to believe. That's the biblical idea of faith. It is this, trust based on reason and evidence. Trust based on reason and evidence. That said, some will say to us, Prove that God exists. Or we can pull that same trick on uh, atheistic naturalism uh, kind of worldview proponents and we can say, prove that God doesn't exist. And the reality is that proof beyond doubt is really not needed. Every day, you and I, we stake very big ideas on evidence that is not absolutely watertight. What do you mean? Well, can I prove that my wife loves me with quantum physics and calculus? No, not really. I'm really bad at both of those things. So uh, I went to Bible college, not, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of math, so I can't do that. I can't prove with that kind of thing that my wife loves me, but I would stake my life on that idea, Right? And you could say, well, you don't have a watertight case scientifically. Uh, You can't prove your wife's love to you with mathematics. But I would say, I don't really need to. Why? Because I have a relationship with her. And it's the same with Jesus. Is there evidence? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's not evidence alone. There's a relationship with a person. There's a point at which I don't need any more evidence because I have a relationship and I don't need definitive, absolute proof. All of us live this way. We believe and trust in things that absolutely can't be proven by science. No matter who you are, you are living with a faith position. Everyone believes in something and makes assumptions about reality that can't be totally proven by science, even a guy like Richard Dawkins who writes The God Delusion. Uh, let me help you with a little uh, story. There was a nurse who was a follower of Jesus and the doctors with whom she worked were adamant that their hospital was going to be a purely secular place. In other words, there was no room for faith to play a role in caring for patients. And so she worked there, she went along with this. Okay, that's fine, we'll do that. And so one night the staff was discussing a patient who was on life support. And one of the doctors, they were debating whether to take him off life support or leave him on. And one doctor said to the other doctors, well, at least, we know if we take him off life support, then he won't be suffering anymore. And everybody in the group nodded in agreement. And they left the room and the nurse was present in that discussion. And she went, wandered down the hall and she started thinking to herself, wait a minute, how do you know that? How do you know that that belief, the idea that a person would not be suffering anymore once he's dead in is in and of itself a metaphysical statement about what the afterlife is. It's a statement of faith. This group of doctors was speaking out of a faith position for which they had no proof. How did they know that this guy would not be suffering once he was not breathing anymore? But they believed that wholeheartedly, didn't they? Without absolute proof, based on no evidence at all. That's a faith position and everyone has one. In fact, you can't do science without a faith position. You have to have faith as a scientist to do science. You must believe and trust that the universe is rationally intelligent and orderly enough to trust that results will make sense, that two plus two will always equal four, that the periodic table of elements won't change randomly. And if they did change randomly, then there would still be a rational explanation for it. And without that kind of faith, science itself, is impossible. And do you see what we're getting at? You see, the real question is not, do you have faith or not? Everybody does. The real question is, what is the content of your faith? What is the content of your set of beliefs? And flowing from that, what is the content of your beliefs based on? And finally, is your position the most valid to hold if you were to examine all of the best available evidence? And so, uh, to conclude today, we want to talk a little bit about evidence. And this is where it could get really fun, because there are all kinds of categories of evidence, dozens of them. We could spend some time talking about the fine-tuning of the universe that um, seems like everything on the planet Earth is just right for life. And that points to a creator. We could talk about the holes in the evolutionary theory. We could talk about irreducible complexity. We could talk about uh, evolution's need not just for mutations, but their need for beneficial mutations. And not just beneficial mutations, but um, simultaneous beneficial mutations. And even after they have simultaneous beneficial mutations, they still have population genetics to overcome. We could talk about the building blocks of the universe amino acids and proteins and cell complexity. Even the simplest cells are so amazingly. Complex, They could not have come from natural processes. We could talk about the Dawkins delusion. (laughs) He wrote a book called The God Delusion, but it has been uh, renamed the Dawkins delusion because atheists who are on his side, by the way, have called his argument the worst atheistic argument in the history of Western thought. Wow, we could talk about that. We could talk about the cosmological argument, how the universe developed, how it had a beginning, and that points to a creator. We could talk about the ontological arguments, the moral arguments. We could talk about arguments from love, arguments from beauty, arguments from enjoyment. As a matter of fact, there's a guy named Alvin Plantinga. And Alvin Plantinga is the greatest living philosopher on the planet right now. And he is a theist. And he has a list of about 12, uh, I'm sorry, two dozen um, arguments for theism. I will try to post those along with the bibliography for this week uh, with our sermon podcast, but I will warn you um, they are not for the week, okay? He is legit. The smartest philosopher who is alive today. So don't wade into his little PDF, um, you know, thinking that you might come away with something without some real uh, study and, and thought. So let me, let me put just two pieces of evidence on the table today in front of you, a mind and a menu. First, a mind. Let me ask this, what is the primary instrument with which we do science? Here's a little hint, you are using it to answer the question. It's not beakers, it's not chemicals, it's not a lab coat. The primary instrument we use to do science is our brain. Yeah, you got it. It's our brain, right? Okay, great. Tell me about the brain. And if you were from a naturalist worldview, the naturalist would say this about your brain and my brain and everybody's brain, that our brains are the end product of a series of unguided processes that took place over billions and billions of years. We, would, we could frame it this way, nothing out of nowhere equals everything everywhere. That's what naturalism believes. And the pinnacle achievement of nothing out of nowhere equals everything everywhere is the human brain. Okay? Awesome. That's the assertion. Here's the question. If you believe your brain came from this path, do you then have a valid reason to trust it to deliver you the truth? Here's an analogy. If you had a computer on your desk that you knew was the result of an unguided, mindless line of people just throwing computer parts at a box... Would you trust that computer? That's not an actual apples to apples comparison because at least the people throwing the parts at the box are intelligent enough to know where the parts should end up even if they can't make them end up there. But would you trust a computer like that? No, you wouldn't even be able to turn it on because the power button would be underneath like the keyboard and nothing would be connected to anybody, anything else. There's no, there no way you could use a computer like that and much less trust it. And if that's the case with a bunch of electronic pieces, then how can you trust your brain if it's the result of unguided natural processes throwing random amino acids around? And it's this idea that actually has nomenclature around it, and we should begin as, as theists, we should begin to use this nomenclature like all the time. And it's called Darwin's Doubt. Everybody say Darwin's Doubt. Say it again, Darwin's Doubt. Oh, you believe in evolution. Have you heard of Darwin's Doubt? Yes, and it's called Darwin's Doubt because that's exactly uh, Darwin himself worried about this idea that this one idea alone could cause his entire theory to collapse and in on itself and implode. He said this, with me, the horrid doubt, there it is, Darwin's doubt, yeah, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy, John Gray puts it uh, well. He gets it to the heart of the problem. He says, modern humanism is the faith that through science, humankind can know the truth and so be set free. But if Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, this is impossible. The human mind serves evolutionary processes, not truth. What does that mean? It means that our brains that created evolution were created by evolution. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's a problem. That's a problem. Yes. Evolution says that what is in us, everything that we have in us is nothing more than what is necessary for survival. Evolution is not concerned in the least with what is true. It's just concerned with what will help us survive. And so our brains at the end of the day could be tricking us, giving us whatever belief that we need so that we survive. Our brains could also be giving us the truth, but we will never... Never be sure, and that's the point. And if we can't trust them about anything in that case, including the idea of evolution itself, Alvin Plantinga, uh, who I referenced earlier, said this If Dawkins is right that we are the product of mindless, unguided natural processes, then he has given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including. Dawkins' own atheism. Rationality, this idea that we can actually get to and find out the truth, goes against the very fabric of evolution. In unguided evolution, it is not likely that any creature would develop true beliefs. It's likely that they would only develop beliefs that helped them survive. And if that's true, then we have to doubt everything everything. Mark Clark said it this way, believing in unguided evolution comes built in with its own reason not to believe it. If you shoot yourself in the foot, that's painful. But if you shoot yourself in the brain, that's fatal. And what atheism does is it shoots itself in the brain. The conclusion is that the only way that we can know what is true is if we have a creator who tells us What is true? Truth is an impossibility without a creator. Here's the second piece of evidence today. It is a menu. A menu. A menu quite like what you might find at lunch today. Here's a menu from a Mexican restaurant that I found. And I want you to uh, pick out a couple of the bold words there. Let's just go with the Mark's steak fajitas. Anybody hungry yet? You will be. Okay. Let's use the evidence in front of us, this menu, the marks on the menu to decide what these marks are all about. The marks that say steak fajitas and what they tell us. Now, one of the ways that we could do that is we could get out our sciencey beakers and Bunsen burners, and we could begin to evaluate the chemistry of the ink and the paper. And we could do experiments to determine the physics of the paper. We could carbon date the paper to see how old it is and determine its age. Maybe we could do some uh, experiments to see if other menus from other Mexican restaurants are related to this one. And what would we, if we did all of that scientific experiment, what would we come away with? Well, we would come away with some interesting information, but we would miss entirely the point. What's the point Of the marks. The point is that steak fajitas is actually a scrumptious meal to be enjoyed. That's the point. And how do we know that? How do we get there without any scientific inquiry whatsoever? It's because there is an immediate inference behind those marks that we see. When we see steak and when we see fajitas, we infer a mind behind those marks. Somebody sat down at a computer and they typed in steak and they typed in fajitas and then they laminate it and they bound it together so that it could be given out to people who come and eat. And when we sit down and eat and we open that menu, we know the marks say steak fajitas. Why? Because we have a mind and we can interpret it, all the information contained in those marks marks on the menu. We would never in a million years sit down to a table like that and look at a menu like that and conclude that millions of years of unguided processes and accidents led to those marks and that menu on the table. But even if they did, even if we did say that, we would still never ascribe a meaning to those marks without the working of a mind behind them. What's the best explanation for the marks on that menu? The best explanation is a mind behind them. Now, here's why we've sat down at the Mexican restaurant table today. Here's the thing. When we look deeply into life, when we look into the very cells of our physical being that make up all of life we find a thing called d n a anybody familiar with d n a deoxyribonucleic acid it's a molecule composed of two chains that coil around each other to form a double helix they carry genetic instructions used in growth development development function uh, and reproduction of all known organisms organisms. And here's the deal. DNA is a 3.5 billion letter word. It's the longest word that we've ever found in the universe. Now, when we come to a menu and we say a five letter word like steak on a menu, we immediately infer a mind behind that word. what about this word? What about a 3.5 billion letter word? Naturalism wants us to infer chance and accidental processes. Do you see the problem with that? The very nature of DNA tells us that there was input of information at some point in the game. And a naturalistic or an atheistic worldview won't allow you that inference. Your worldview limits what you can use as an explanation. Naturalism doesn't allow you to say what is obvious to say. If you sit down at a menu, you would say, oh, someone wrote that. And it means something, and that's why I can understand it. Because I was created to be able to understand it with my mind. And it was created by a mind. And yet... When we sit down to DNA, it's a 3.5 billion letter word with meaning and instructions on how to create every part of you. I wonder how that got there. Oh, it must've been millions of years of accidents and chance. And what I'm getting at here is that information and communication and language are necessary for life. They're necessary for DNA to do its thing. What the latest science is telling us is that DNA is a marker of intelligence. It's not evidence of biochemical evolutionary processes. We could put it very simply. DNA cannot be made by biological evolution because it contains information that cannot come from material sources. Our DNA points us to a creator. This word inside our body is telling us that an outside agent installed intelligence and communication and language into every cell that makes up the living universe. Werner Heisenberg is the father of quantum mechanics, and he said it this way, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will make you an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. All we've done today is just thrown out two little pieces of evidence. And where do those two little pieces of evidence lead us? A menu leads us to information and language and communication from a mind, and is DNA, which is the menu of the body, better explained by atheism and naturalism or by theism? In our brain, it's the pinnacle achievement of all biology. It's best, is it best explained by random chance or does random unguided natural processes actually undermine everything about it? Does atheism or theism best explain how we can know what is true with our brain? Science has not buried God, but science is doing a really good job of burying atheism. Atheism undermines the very rationality that is needed to do science, and that's why science came out of a Christian culture in the first place. We don't have time today to dive into the history of science, but the boiled down truth is this, that God and science have never been in conflict. That idea was a 19th century fabrication. The truth is that science came on the scene because of people who believed that God created an orderly, law-governed, discoverable, rational universe. They believed that because of who God was, they would be able to study the orderly nature of the universe because they believed that there was a rational, intelligent mind behind it. And that's how we have science in the first place. And so the war. The war is not between God and science. The conflict is between two worldviews. One worldview says that in the beginning, there was nothing. Maybe material, that's all that exists. And everything comes from that. Everything, including information and mind and language is derivative from nothing. Everything comes from nothing. But there's another worldview that says in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And all things were made and came to be through Him. Without Him, nothing has been made that has been made. And this worldview says that Logos, the Word, information, energy, intelligence, command a personal God, that the Logos is the primary thing behind the universe. you have a a little box in your pocket or in your purse and it tells you that you're living in the information age. And how amazing is it, it's appropriate, that science more and more, even in this information age, is telling us that the basis of all life is linguistic, that this universe is a word-based universe and everything came from this information, this intelligence, this Word. Naturalism says that material is all there is, but the latest light bulbs going off in science are admitting that information isn't material. Information can hitch a ride on material. It can be carried by the material, but information itself is not material. Material is not all there is. Information is foundational to everything and demands that there is a mind behind Everything that we see and what we have in a document written centuries ago is that mind. It says this, and God said, and God said, and God said, and, God said, and it was so. And so according to that ancient text, our universe is built up by speech acts, by information, by intelligence. And I got to ask this, how did Moses know? When he was writing Genesis, how did he know that? And 20 centuries ago, when John sat down and wrote his gospel, how did he know? How did he know that in the beginning was the word and that all things came to be through that word? Our universe is a word-based universe. How did they know? One thing that naturalists always knew was that more science would always lead to less God. But what we're finding is the exact opposite. The deeper we go in our science, the more God we find. The more information we find packed into the building blocks of life, the more outdated naturalism and atheism become. Because the creator who created by a word has left evidence of his genius in each of the 10 billion cells in your body. There's an information-bearing macromolecule that sits there called DNA, and it's communicating, it's teaching, it's instructing, it's speaking, and your body cannot work without it. And that's the start, to see God, the mind, the word behind everything. The next question is, do you know that word? The bigger claim, is the one that God is speaking to us at a human level, not just a cellular level, but at a human level, that God himself, the word came and dressed himself in flesh so that he could speak to us face to face. And when he spoke, he said, I am the truth. And he also said, I am the life. I'm gonna call the band up and um, I'm gonna end uh, in a not so very scientific way but it's important. When I was at uh, Ozark Christian College, I had a vision from God and this vision wore pink sweats. (laughs) And I came to believe that it would be a good idea to marry this vision who wore pink sweats. And so one day I came to her with a cookbook and I said, Amy, let's get married. And when we do, the principle of our marriage will be found on page 278 of this cookbook. On 278 of this cookbook, you will find oatmeal, peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies. Right there are the laws of oatmeal, peanut butter chocolate chip cookies. Do you see them? You shall take one cup of sugar and you shall take two eggs and you shall take peanut butter and oatmeal and you shall take this and that and you will put it together in a bowl and mix it and you shall bake it at 350 degrees for 12 minutes and thou shalt get the most delicious cookies ever conceived. And she said, what? And I said, yeah if you'll keep those cookie rules for the next 40 to 50, maybe 60 years of our life, then I will think about accepting you. (laughs) You know that's not what happened, right? That's crazy talk. And yet, oh, here's what we do. Millions of people believe that about God. That if I keep the rules, whatever they may be, for 40, for 50, for 78 years, then maybe, maybe God will accept me. Listen, you would not insult a fellow human being by suggesting that a relationship is based on merit. I certainly didn't want to insult a future wife by insisting that she measure up in some way and maybe somewhere down the road, I will accept her. And so as you can understand, I did not give her a cookbook, right? The secret of our marriage is not a cookbook. It's not rules. It's the secret of our married life is that she accepts me unconditionally and I accept her unconditionally for better, for worse. That's the vow we made. And the interesting thing is that that is what set her free to learn enough about me that she has discovered my love for oatmeal, peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies. And she discovered in herself a desire to learn how to make them and to keep making them and to keep making them better and better. And that's the genius of Christianity. That you and I have made a mess. And right off the bat, right off the bat, God forgives you and deals with the big problems. He transforms your life based on the work of Jesus. He doesn't wait till the end. He doesn't say, oh, maybe you'll measure up, maybe 40 or 50 years, we'll see how you do, and then we will, uh, maybe I'll get around to accept you. No, right away, you pass from death to life by the merit of Jesus. And the one who will ultimately stand as the final judge tells you, because you have trusted me to cover your sin and guilt, I will fix the mess that you've made of life. I will accept you right now. And I will never reject you. And that makes us want to learn everything we can about him so that we can make the best cookies possible for his kingdom. Father, we thank you for a universe based on the word of life. We thank you that that word has spoken that that word has said, I created you, I died for you, I love you. And may we commit ourselves in a new and a deeper way to the source of our life so that through our words, others may see the word. It's in the name of Jesus, the living word that we pray. Everybody said, amen. I'd like you to stand. We're gonna sing a song. Maybe the truth is you don't know a lot about that word today. Uh, We'll be here up at the front. Uh, Would you come and would you just say, I want to know this word that is the source of all life and we can get you to your next step in Jesus as we sing.